This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast. In tonight's episode, we will be discussing the life of Christ in the book of Mark. So as hosts of this podcast, we strive to provide you with relevant and, and compassionate worldviews and frameworks that will help guide you through your life. So we believe that in order to achieve this, it's important to get our house in order. So we need to learn some things in order to put some things together. And there's certain essential things that we believe that we need to build blocks or have building blocks in order so that we can fulfill, fully love and care for our neighbor as the Bible commands us to do so. We encourage a worldview that's built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we are examining the life of Christ and through a clear and honest lens. So by doing so, we hope that we offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. We wanna assure you that tonight's episode, we will not be fabricating anything as many have done and any information or ideas are just absolutely honest, an authentic, honest perspective on our examination of this book. So in previous episodes, we've discussed the potential pitfalls of simply deconstructing old ideas without moving towards a new understanding. So through this Life of Christ study, it's important to not get stuck in a cycle of perpetuating same behaviors that we sought to change. So we're giving new ideas, authentic ideas, a fresh perspective, and a new framework to construct healthy habits and behaviors. So that's why the Constructionist Podcast is a space for exploring new ideas, presenting practical thoughts in a non-judgmental way, maybe in even some new theologies for daily life. So we aim to provide a platform for an authentic discussion on relevant topics so that our listeners can find new ways to live purposeful and a meaningful existence. So in tonight's episode, we're excited to share our best attempt at exploring practical ways to apply these ideas and theologies to our life. So we're going to look at the life of Christ through the book of Mark. If you enjoy the Constructionist podcast, we want you to support us financially. So please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform that you're listening to and watching and visit our give page. Your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like this in the future. But even more importantly, we want to hear from you, engage with you. We believe that through our interaction and our discussions as listeners with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. We value your feedback, questions, and ideas, and we're excited to build a community around a shared exploration called a communal hermeneutic of perspectives. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We review the questions before we post them. So ask your question on the social media. We will look at those in real time, and then we will tell you what we think. So Sharia and Jake, thank you so much for joining us tonight as we continue on the book of Mark. And we took a couple of weeks off or maybe a week off and we are now back in the throes of chapter 10. How are you doing tonight? Doing okay. Good. Awesome. 
That dad joke that was told, we might as well just say it out loud. What do you do? What do you get when you cross an elephant and a rhino? Elephino, right? That's our dad joke for today. So let's get into <laughs> chapter 10. Is this a new segment? <laughs> <laughs> it's a new segment. We're going to have 10 dad jokes starting next week. No. Uh, so chapter 10, that's where we're going to be at, Mark chapter 10. Let's throw it up there for us to read. Jake, you want to read it for us first? She just left that place and went beyond the Jordan and into the region of Judea. Crowds gathered around him again, and as usual, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and, trying to test him, they asked, Does the law a man... Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. Jesus said to them, He wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife and the two will be one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Okay. Well, that brings up a lot of hot topics. And the first topic that we are talking about is marriage and maybe a definition of marriage to start and continue having an iterative discussion about what is marriage, what the Bible says about marriage, but then as this addresses, what is divorce? Now, there are all kinds of conflicting views when it comes to divorce, marriage, and remarriage, and what is allowed and what is not allowed. And so, first and foremost, I just want to state that that conversation is not over. It's not just a said thing and we're done with that conversation. There's a lot of people that do not share common views uh, with marriage, even though I take maybe a more progressive view of marriage and what it means for our culture. I think that there's a lot of people out there that really struggle with the subject, possibly struggle with the subject because they have been victimized in their marriages and their relationships and so potentially some of certain people's thoughts spur from that certain people have lived in abusive theological environments that teach a certain very toxic and potentially just very narrow view of marriage as well well that can be just as abusive as a toxic relationship so in that spiritual abuse i would say that people have a misunderstanding of the view of marriage as as well so that's just some opening statements that that the conversation doesn't just need to be this is what god allows or doesn't allow and conversation over i think that's a dangerous um, approach to conversation about theology in the first place and we just can't just have a very well a certainty that a certainty of god and what god actually thinks and perceives of certain relationship contexts. So the Bible is not our, I guess, would you say, um, final word on such things as psychology, sociology, 
sciences, biology. It wasn't meant to be that. It was meant, the Bible was meant to be the final word about God and our relationship with God. So that's where this, I mean, I think scripture, this, putting... that's where this scripture um, points us towards is our relationship with God first. Stepping back, Kevin, you said that scripture is our final word about God. I think that's, that could be even too far as well. Well, yeah, we only have a certain number of books, 66 books. And so it's that word about God. So maybe you're yeah. right that, that it's not necessarily the final word. Mm -hmm. Just a word about. Right. So okay. what do you guys have to think? Give me your initial thoughts on this scripture. It's a heavy one. I mean, I think. <laughs> It's there. There's quite a few paths that you can take, um, especially with the idea of, especially the idea of, of divorce. Is it? Is it economic? Is it societal? Is it? Is it actually a sin? What's the sin in this? So we have to get into the definition of marriage as well. So what is marriage? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, anybody else want to take a stab at that for a second while I adjust things? <laughs> no, but the first thing that came up for me is that the, the way the passage is written, they're asking whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. So that's already setting up some power dynamics in the situation. The question isn't, is it okay to get divorced? The question is, can a man divorce his wife? Um, and so I think we need to also grapple with those power dynamics if we're going to look at the text honestly. Yeah, and the answer to that question though is yes, right? Right. So we have, we have this idea that that divorce is this very ultimate sin, and that's based upon Malachi as well. Mm -hmm. Is my is my mic louder now? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so the idea is that the Malachi it states that God hates divorce, and so right. when when we base everything on that text, that that divorce then is sin and depending upon who leaves whom is the greatest sinner. And so we've been a part of very weird church scenarios where a divorcee couple uh, has to even choose who's coming to church. Who, And we usually blame the female party in it all. Um, I think that's the consistent pattern. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why, no matter what, uh, they are the ones to always blame. Well, it's a patriarchal systemic right. issue. Yeah. Well, I think Trey is right. The question is, is not really revolving around what is marriage or what kind of marriage it's revolving around. Can I divorce my spouse and marry another? And that, and that issue right there, I think is a very perplexing issue for many, many people that would claim or identify with Christianity and what has been taught in churches 
um, over the years. That's a perplexing issue for them because of the damning voices that they've heard or the, the lack of opportunity that people have had because they're divorced. They no mm -hmm. longer can serve in different roles. So, for example, a pastor that's divorced, an elder that's divorced, those are not common. That's not common language in especially evangelical churches where right. it, you do have a patriarchal system, but then you also have a familial um, type system mm -hmm. where you have to be married. You have to have like even children. Um, you have to. There's a lot of should contracts around that, yeah. but certainly one thing yeah. is you cannot be divorced and qualify as an elder. Taken from First Timothy, where it says yeah. that you are a man of one wife. So they take a literal interpretation, lift that scripture out, and then apply it in the negative antithesis, where it's like, well, if you're a man of one wife, that means that a divorced person can't serve in this capacity. So I think that through that teaching, um, that has put people in a very, I, I think, a severed place where they're severed from the church. They're severed from a, a full relationship with Christ. Uh, yeah. And and they're under that oppression, I would say. It's like an oppressive talk. Yeah. I mean, really, it's a divorced person, especially a female, in the in the day of that the Bible was written, they would have been completely destitute, unable to remarry, mm -hmm. unable to hold, get a job because they're female. And so it's the whole idea is, is almost the same of how we treat, how we treat a divorce in the evangelical church now is that they're second class, um, mm -hmm. unable to serve in full capacity. Um, that's not something that we hold to, I don't think. Uh, but the idea is that you know, we definitely keep them arms away against being fully functioning adults, fully functioning humans. Well, I think that there's a there's a, a complex that the church has around family where yeah. especially in America and United States of America, we have this idea in Christianity to be fully functional as a Christian, there's certain requirements. So you don't hear a lot about a single youth pastor that's 40, right? That's not very common. Right. Um, and then we start thinking things, especially if they're male. It's like, well, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? So they, ha we have this like, like weird filter that we see people through when, mm -hmm. you know, okay, you're 30, you're 30 years old. And you're still not married, so then what's wrong with Something's you? Wrong like with that's you. yeah, that's yep. kind of like our thing. When Jesus was like thirty and thirty-one and yep. thirty-two and thirty-three, and you got some others out there like Paul, and so so we don't necessarily go back to that original tradition and say, okay, what what actually is making a person whole in Christ and I think it's a lot of Catholic theology that's kind of been bled over into evangelicalism where marriage is considered a sacrament. So it is a holy like place to be that you are issued the sacrament of marriage, which is some like higher status almost. I know that they don't claim that and Catholics, especially like it's just the, the tenders, seven, they, the, the tenders sacraments. wouldn't like say that they're better than 
but definitely in our culture, uh, married people are considered more capable, more uh, affluent, more grown, you know, up. grown up. Yeah, then we just have, have this idea. Yeah, that that puts a, a sacredity around marriage that when that falls apart, then that's considered like sin and unholy and blame mm -hmm. and oh my gosh, you broke God's laws and you're no longer whole again. What I, what I find weird about making marriage a sacrament in, in the Catholic movement, but also the Protestant movement where a lot was focused on expansion through procreation. Um, mm. To call marriage a Christian institution Marriage been, has been around a lot longer than Christianity has been around in every culture, in every time period, almost. I think that could be a generalization, but that's a pretty good one. And so marriage far yeah. surpasses any any religious institution that we have. And so it is a, it is a foundation of humanity. So my question has always been why are why are we so unwilling to accept let's just throw out some big bombs why are we so willing to to not accept gay marriage of of two women two males but will accept a marriage of two buddhists or two muslims mm. it's like where as long as they're male and female like where's the line at right because the entire purpose is this really strong fixation on sex. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say that it goes farther. The church has had a problem and society has a problem with marriage for a very long time, especially in the U.S., um, where if a... I mean, back in the day, not too long ago, mind you, is to have someone that is black that marries somebody that is white. That was an illegal, at one point, an illegal idea. Um, the, and the Lovings? At, huh? Correct. Was, was the, the Supreme Court case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it was frowned upon for a very long time. And I know for a a personal relationship with several people in my life that they still have this issue problem with interracial marriage. And, and so it's a cultural um, dilemma that I think that we have this stigma or this maybe should contract or something extra. It's a Jesus plus issue that, that it's an extra thing that we're putting on people that you have to be married and you have to be married a certain way and your your color of your skin needs to match and you know your sexes need to be opposite and and so on and so I mean it's just the, there is a laundry list and then if you only have one child then you know of course there's something wrong with you and if you adopt children there's something wrong with you and if you have too many children there's something wrong with you. Um, even if you have four children, there's something, you know, like, okay, that's about it now. 
Okay, it's time to slow down. And so we have, or how do you afford all that? And so it becomes a money thing. Uh, or if you have no children, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. And so I've, I've definitely um, heard all of that when I was single and newly married and adopting children and all the things that I've done. I've heard all of that. So there's like this certain complex that I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. I'm sure it's a, a mincing of lots of opinions, thoughts, and theologies, poor theologies out there. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's find out then from the Bible. Then where does marriage? I think uh, where does marriage is first alluded to? If you believe that the Book of Genesis was written in exile, um, and it's compiled as a poem, a Hebrew poem, we see an allusion in that poetic idea of the male and the female leave and then cleave to one another. And so this idea of becoming one flesh actually just means they become a relationship that's formed as family. So it actually means like brother and sister, if anything, which is kind of weird to think about um, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that we see the creation of human beings and they become a, uh, they become one flesh. So, so the implication there is we have, uh, in our modern language, we would say father, mother, and then eventually, um, a family. Yeah. Um, you'll see suggestions now, um, in Mark that there's a patriarchal lineage or a patriarchal form where the man is, the the head or is able to put away his wife so he is in control they get that from genesis people do get that from genesis in what they call the created order the created order is man was created first and then female was created second and then there's just a ball that rolls in one, in one of the poems yes that that the ball is rolled, then creating a patriarchal uh, system. So, so a serious view, though, of marriage. If you, I mean, if if you if you just look at Genesis first layer and see it as a literal scripture, where the world poof was created by God in six days, on the seventh day rested, and somewhere in there magically two people are pulled out of the dust and one is taken from the side. And if you take a literal idea of that, then you do come up with a patriarchal uh, order of human beings. The problem is Sharia has continually commented that animals then would be the head of humans if we really stuck to the created order of things. So that's problematic. Um, I think that if you jump over to Hebrews 13, basically there's a call that marriage is to be upheld and to honor each other. So there's an honoring, even wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, even in that Aristotelian code, there is definitely an honoring of each other. 
and it's it's not necessarily a one looking down on the on the other so there's several aspects to marriage that if you take it literally you can come up with those conclusions but you start reading in in different uh in different passages and you you see more of an equality more of a shared experience more of a relationship uh building um that is what's called holy it's it's special when you can build one another up in in such a way and so uh i guess you would say it's a union or a covenant and so the answer to the question what is marriage it's a covenant with two people a promise and terms and so a covenant as every marriage ceremony that i've ever done in my entire life 315 of them probably right now is i always say marriage is a covenant it's a relationship building experience with parties terms and promises the party is between two people the terms are for the rest of your life and you would promise to love each other through all things thoughts on that <laughs> well so i want to look back at the passage rob would you put the slide up again and i do believe there's a second slide that goes along with this one as well yeah but it's on the first one that i want to look at so an argument i have heard is that because Jesus is going back to the Genesis story and uses the example, God made them male and female. So there's this argument that says that Jesus is looking at the text literally. Um, that Jesus does think that Genesis, that Genesis story is, is the way it happened exactly. Um, and then especially, I think something that's worth mentioning is that some folks will also use this text as a way to say that um, Jesus is against gay marriage because God made them male and female and is referring back to this literal interpretation of Genesis. So how do we deal with that? Well, the problem is, is that we live in the New Testament well, the, the, not the problem, the good problem that we have is we live in the New <laughs> Testament. And it says in the New Testament that in Christ, there is no gender. That there's no more male or female in Christ. Mm -hmm. So my good Presbyterian female pastor friend, and I just think is just a gem and has taught me a ton of things. She taught me that first. She said, remember, Kevin, the kingdom of God is genderless. And in a genderless society, it's equal. Mm -hmm. And so there's an equality. Now, I, I support um, any person called a human being. And anybody that's a human being, which means every human on earth, I think that we work for their success um, to say that I have the answer on relationships and I'm going to impose my view of relationships on another person. I mean, gay marriage, I, I have no idea why Christian evangelicals had such a problem with gay marriage because 
marriage, when we released out of our hands the contracts of marriage and we gave it back to the states, where the states now issue the license, a pastor then performs the marriage and signs the certificate, but the license is given and the federal government authorizes and the state government authorizes this institution of marriage. That's why we fill out joint taxes and we have joint state taxes and we have beneficiaries automatic to our spouses and things like that that are under law. So the moment that it became a cultural legal binding idea, and then you say in that culture that relationships that are between men and men and women and women are legal, then they deserve in a society that is fair and mm -hmm. democratic, they Super in a republic, condition. they deserve equal rights and privileges that all people can attain. And so if you're going to say that marriage is a legal institution and men and men and women and women can be in relationship with one another, then that's a legal human rights thing. Same with insurance, same with mm -hmm. car insurance, same with life insurance, same with benefits. And if it's a legal cultural thing, then it's a legal cultural thing. That's why I was totally for 100% towards the Equal Marriage Act. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Jesus is really, and I don't think he cares about the idea of divorce. Because Moses said it, okay, he said it because of this. But I think it has more to do with the, the break of relationship. And what happens? Hundred percent, yeah. And what happens in in divorcing, like families, communities, people, and so even even if you take friendships that divorce, I call it as that. There is is a huge fallout, mm -hmm. and so I mean we have we have courts and lawyers and a whole industry dedicated towards divorce because of the amount of of toll that it takes financially legally emotionally physically relationally mm -hmm. and so i think if you if you really i think i really do believe jesus's words here can be taken literally but i think it has more to do with with doing your best to maintain relationship, not mm -hmm. in abuse, not in not in weirdness. This was this was talking more about the Hellenistic view of marriage and divorce as more of a hobby, lifestyle, than an actual necessity, mm -hmm. right? Well, I think personally, if I look at my lens of Exodus, and I think that Mark is the retelling of the book of Exodus, this has nothing to do with people. So okay. we'll just 
drop that out there. Just <laughs> throw that in there. But I think that it needs to be noted because you're bringing it up that there's two different schools of thought when this was written. When this was written and or thought of and penned or spoken for the first time, there's two ideas and there's two rabbis that were around um, in Jewish history that were very influential. And one was the rabbi Shammai and the other was Rabbi Hillel. And Hillel is a little bit familiar because that's Gamaliel's great-grandfather, grandfather in the line of Gamaliel. And so, so, but Shammai was more spiritual than Hillel. Hillel was definitely more um, structure, discipline, um, divorce and marriage was a contract. It was very transactional. So we get all of our versions of the dowry, the giving away of the bride by the father, um, even like what we have now distilled down into ring exchanges, um, even even said vows, uh, there's like a transactional idea. All of that comes from the Rabbi Hillel. And in the dowry and in this idea that the, the man would be building the house, well, usually on the property on. of his hold, fathers. Hold on. Go ahead. You said that all like the dowry comes from the Rabbi Hillel. No, 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 no. The idea of this transaction was spoken in a Jewish literature and history by the Rabbi Hillel. Okay. Because so, lots of the cultures have dowries. Well, and... well of course, yeah. yes. Yeah. But but this Jewish mark, yeah. Jewish, yeah. Jesus, Jewish, <laughs> right? Everyone's around here is, you know, Jewish thinking. And so this idea of marriage spoken in this way is very Hillel. And so in ancient tradition, the man would be building the house and, and then the dowry would be given. And I don't know if you've ever read the story, the nine cow wife, but cows, cattle, um, money, uh, precious metals, gems, those kinds of things were exchanged as a, like a nest egg to secure the promise that she was a virgin. The larger the dowry, the more convincing there was and had to be. So if a woman came with a large dowry, right? So you see what I'm saying here. So, so it was all a promise, like a security exchange that she, and it, and it revolves around whether or not she was a virgin. A lot of it is. Um, and, you know, you can culturalize it and stuff that it's not all about sex, but usually it was back then. So we'll just let that sit. Uh, the man then did not know usually when the bride was coming. So you had this hail girl a little girl that would be hailing the bride is coming the bride is coming and 
and then she would announce this bride that would come up on a you know carriage driven by her father there was an exchange of this dowry and then the husband would then drive off into his new home which uh, with, was usually attached to his parents home right with new cattle and new life uh forward for their new future that transfer of property payment of bride price basically gave the husband the rights that if she wasn't quote a fit person either she wasn't a virgin or she wasn't what was promised right so let's say she just you know didn't match up to the expectation that she could be quote put away that's very hallel that's the rabbi hallel that spoke that but in shammai thought the rabbi shammai argued that that marriage was a covenant created by god so people would marry and they would form their own covenant and that marriage was a covenant of love and faithfulness of just said promises given of people that had basically like their their uh their um i guess honor in their word towards one another that's shemai so malachi is referring to shemai mm -hmm. when he says god hates divorce that is a reference to Shammai versus a reference to Hillel. It's hmm. good. Any other thoughts on that? Shrey, you have any well, how do we mental know who Jesus was referring to? Huh? How do we know who Jesus was referring to? Well, I think that, that Hillel theology or Hillel um, writing had penetrated the culture enough that he was referring to um, Hillel, mm -hmm. that he was referring to that version of just putting away uh, people. Yeah, he was He was doing it really to, he was dog whistling the Pharisees. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so all the Pharisees listening would have been in the in the context of Hillel. And right. he is actually is bringing out the Shammai, the more spiritual aspect and the more relational aspect of it all. Not right. so law based, but all about what the position, even like, well, Moses gave you that out because of your hearts. Even right. that was an idea of, of Shammai. Right. Well, if God hated divorce so much and thought it was just against all morality and all moral law, then we wouldn't have had basically two or three chapters of the book of Ezra. Because then at that point, you have, you have literally priests and Levites, high, high officials marrying 
outside of the tribe. Mm -hmm. And they, in one of the chapters, they're basically like then allowed a handful of time to get divorced. Isn't that, isn't that in Ezra? I believe so. It's so, either Ezra or Nehemiah. I think it's Ezra. Ezra. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a clear, purposeful, divine, divinely sanctioned <laughs> divorce. Where I'm like, wow. Okay. So that's, I understand that they didn't allow people to marry outside of quote Israel, but they were married. So, mm -hmm. and there were leaders married and they were allowed to terminate those marriages. Um, man, anyway, that's a, that's a pretty clear story to me. Right. But also what happened to all of the women and children? Oh, they might've been killed. Well, that's yeah, problematic. <laughs> that is problematic. Or they just were left to die. Right. Because not only did you get divorced, but now you are divorced from somebody that's a foreigner on that side, on the other side. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, at that point, you go into the story of, of Ruth, right? We had a mm -hmm. whole culture of gleaners that were living off, off generosity. And so, right. Like there was a sub, a sub economy that would pick these people up. Not very <laughs> well. Uh, Slaves slaves yeah if they could get if they become a could become a slave in someone's house that was a big deal yeah yeah i guess i'm just thinking at... if we're saying that ezra is an example of divorce that god is totally cool with we still need to look at the ramifications mm -hmm. is god totally cool with the women and children just being left to die yeah it's rough it is rough i'm looking you up know. another scripture for us Definitely not. <laughs> okay, so in First Corinthians seven. So here's another. Here's New Testament. Oh, here we I'm go. Gonna, there we go. <laughs> so this is Corinth and the questions that are um, facing the Corinthian church. I'm passing on on the Lord's command to those who are married. So this is to those married people. A wife shouldn't leave her husband. But if she does leave him, then she should stay single or be reconciled to her husband. And a man shouldn't divorce his wife. I'm telling everyone else, if a believer has a wife who doesn't believe and she agrees to live with him, then he shouldn't divorce her. This is very Hillel, okay, transactional. If a woman has a husband who doesn't believe and he agrees to live with her, then she shouldn't divorce him. The husband who doesn't believe belongs to God because of his wife, and the wife who doesn't believe belongs to God because of her husband. Otherwise, your children should be contaminated by the world, but now they are spiritually set apart. But if a spouse who doesn't believe chooses to leave, then let him leave. The brother or sister isn't tied down in these circumstances. God has called you to peace. How do you know as a wife if you should save your husband or how do you know if, as a husband if you should save your wife? So there's another divine sanctioned reason mm -hmm. to leave your spouse. Yeah. 
Now, it's a delineated and believer, non-believer. But at what point is somebody a non-believer? Yeah. I mean, what language do we have to have or what, you know, what line of abuse do we have to cross or what kind of foulness do we have to be right. to constitute non-believers? So there's some language there that is kind of gray for me. Yes. Very How... gray. So is it situational? Is that what we're saying? Well, I mean, I think that that even marriage of itself is situational. Like each each couple is a different situation. So do I've seen people that have had, you know, multiple other extramarital relationships and they have survived in marriage. And I've seen other people that do not survive that. They can't survive it. They they walk away. Um, I've seen people that just don't like each other anymore and get divorced. <laughs> they just kind of get annoyed with each other. And it's like, so you're not fighting about anything big. You're not like, nope. you're not like <laughs> throwing fists. You're not having affairs. You're not nothing like nothing. No, we just don't like, just don't like each other anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. Like you've been married for 25 years and just, I mean, okay. It's a, I get it. <laughs> I get why you don't like each other anymore, but like, I don't like it's a either. lot to invest. It's a lot to invest in another person to just wake up and go, I've had this epiphany last night. I had a dream that we weren't together anymore. So see you later. So I guess, uh, I guess it is situational. Yeah. And I mean, to, to be told that you have to stay in a marriage and this, I mean, this usually goes back to the mistreatment of, of women in marriages, right? Yes, right. Right. To be told that it's a sin to leave marriage and that you should fight for it no matter what, even though that you're the abused party is, is completely wrong. And that's something that, has been taught for a long, long time. I don't know where that's not scriptural whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, no, not at all. I think that marriage though is serious. I think we need to bring a honor and a seriousness to marriage. And I also, I also think that a spouse can definitely be a stumbling block to somebody's growth and their, their fruit of their spirit. So it is a spiritual decision to be married or to separate or divorce from that person. I've always encouraged people, if, if you're really struggling in your marriage, try like some intentional separation. And if that means go on vacation for two weeks by yourself, then go on vacation for two weeks by yourself. If that means move out and get an apartment by yourself for a couple of years, especially if you've been married for like 30, you know, then then go get your apartment for a couple of years and, and take some time and 
and pray what I would call in the spirit over that kind of kind of decision because it is difficult and it is a serious um, decision. I think that people to get divorced is is a very very difficult a hurtful many times hurtful and traumatic experience that's why we have divorce lawyers and that's why we have courts because people just don't seem to get along in their separations so i think that that for the most part uh, most marriages, we need to like take that seriously and spend some time trying to find healing and wholeness uh, uh, post-marriage or through separation as well. Yes. Otherwise, the, easy, the, the, the easiest thing is just to bounce into another relationship after that to try to find wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that could be an unhealthy experience as well. Yes. Should we go to the next slide? Sure. Do you want to get out of this topic already? No, it's the same topic. We've... Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I can read. Inside the house, the disciples asked him again about this. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And a w if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God king God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. Okay, so how many of you have picked up that this is more about Israel or the Hebrew people and God, Israel and God, adultery of Israel and God, possibly more than just people. Is that how we're going to tie together the, the last little bit about the children? Yeah, because otherwise it feels like a non sequitur. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Go ahead, Jake. What's your position on this? I, mean, I still think it's about people. I don't think we can say it's not about people. I think what you're, what, you're, what you're saying, I think, Kevin, is that it has a bigger meaning than just than just a literal, linear reading of, of the passage. Always, always, and, always, always. <laughs> but to say that it's just, it's not about people, I think it might be a little too harsh. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, the well, I'm no, 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 no. I'm saying it's about people. No, what you said is it's not about people. It's about that's what you said. So it's what do you people? Use? It's about people. <laughs> so so well, let's just go back. Can we go back to that first scripture uh, passage? There, I'm going to read something in here. The very first slide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Some Pharisees came and tried to test him. They said. Does the law allow God to divorce Israel? Jesus answered, what did Moses command you? Moses allowed God to write a divorce certificate and divorce Israel. He wrote this commandment for you because of the unyielding hearts you have. 
at the beginning of creation, God made people. Because of this, God should, or these people be joined together with the wife, so the marriage covenant is given between God and Israel. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Go to the next slide. This is just a theory. Inside the house, the disciples asked him about this. Whoever divorces Israel and, or when Israel m marries another person, idol worship, right? So then you get into idol worship here. And then that divorces, she commits adultery. And so now we have this whole metaphor of adultery in this second passage. I just think that there's allusions to it. Every time you see adultery, every time you see marriage, um, those are used all through the Old Testament about God's relationship with Israel. Yes. So you can't deny that it's like hovering under the sand a little bit. You really cannot. Just a little. <laughs> and I think to, to build strong theologies of relationships around such verses that have bigger metaphors and pictures to them um, is oh, yeah. really dangerous to do, I think. If you... If you read the prophets, especially mm -hmm. Jeremiah, mm -hmm. most of the metaphors, Hosea, Malachi. Yeah. Most of the metaphors about this marriage divorce, right? Yeah. Often. I'll say oftentimes the marriage, the, the metaphor is marriage and divorce. Yeah. In other words, God was reconciling the word, world to himself through Christ. And this is if you count divorce as sin. So let's just say you do. So divorce is sin. Let's just make that blanket statement for a minute. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. So if you do believe that divorce is sin, God does not count that against you. And so therefore, through Christ and Christ's spirit, we are whole. We are whole beings. So going back to the intro, that a lot of churches think that you're divorced, you're like a, now a, a partial person, or you're not a complete person. Same with singleness and things like that, that what's wrong with you. And so I believe that anybody that's divorced, that I believe is in a reconciled sense, mostly with themselves. I would say that, okay, did you, for, have you forgiven the person that you divorced? Have you forgiven them? Have you asked for forgiveness? Has there been any kind of reconciliation? Because the thing that, that like we don't need as the church in leadership is hateful spirits and, and uh, unreconciled issues and resentments dragged in the center of conversations. And that's where we see uh, life through that filter. So I think that that's, more of the issue when it comes to the leadership of churches where it's like okay is there hateful spirit is there unforgiveness is there lack of reconciliation is there forbearance is there just letting go have you let it go and most of the time people are just guilty in and of themselves you know they feel guilty and they have not reconciled that issue with them with the person that you know is yeah. 
is dealing with it. But even then, as, as you're talking about um, experiencing healing before participating in an eldership or something like that, um, I think we could say that about a lot of our own issues, too. Right, then it becomes a little bit more of a generalizing principle. Like, if you haven't worked on your anger, then maybe maybe you shouldn't be on the elder board. Um, oh, yeah. And we rarely have those conversations. Rarely. And that's yeah. probably the more of the conversation that we need to have, because I've had more toxic, mean, violent... I had somebody... I had I had somebody punch an elder like in the face. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that was something else. I mean, that was like his whole face was swollen. Um, I've had keys thrown at me, chucked at me from across the room. Uh, you don't think I should be an elder anymore? I'll I'll show you. You know, big old guy walks out, just chucks his keys at me. I'm like, are you kidding me? Just, I mean, the fact that you're chucking your keys at me right, just shows this, me. This should that's be the, evidence. This has the disqualification. I don't care if you've been married 15 times at that point. It's like your disqualification is the fact that you don't have self-control. I mean, the spirit, yeah. you know, it's like, what happened to the gifts of the spirit in this whole conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goodness. All right. This topic is just, it's too scary. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm kidding. Having flashbacks of those keys. Oh, it is just, I'm triggered. I'm triggered. <laughs> I am. Yeah, right there, Rob. Awful. One more. Do we have a little more? No. Oh, we have a little more. Maybe. Uh, Shreya, were you reading? Jesus continued down the road. Oh. A ran, man ran up, now before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do? To obtain eternal life. Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. <laughs> yep. Honor your father and your mother. Oh. Teacher, he responded. Yeah. I've kept all these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, you are lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But the lamb was dismayed at the statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. He was a greedy little cuss, that kid. Go ahead, Rob, you're good. So we don't we don't talk about these others hardly ever. The like others? don't give false false testimony. Need that other list. What was the yeah, it, Well, but like, don't defraud. I mean, we just don't talk about any of these things. And then, are you just a greedy little cuss? I mean, I think that, I think that that probably well is the, 
linchpin of Jesus's story right here is the bigger qualifier for human relationship and maybe even leadership and and such as are you greedy greedy or i mean yeah uh a book that i appreciate talks about hoarding right Mm -hmm. and you you when you hoard you take away from other people and so even this morning we were talking about that our economic system only works when there's a taken from party Mm -hmm. somebody all money always flows up it never trickles down no matter what anyone thinks it always flows up right and so Jesus is trying to turn upside down the economy here and say, if you have a lot, sell it, give to the poor. Live simply. Well, it's his emotions after. That's why I'm calling him a greedy little cuss. Because he's. it's the emotions afterwards. Yeah. Do you see the emotions? Mm-hmm. Where is he was it saddened. at? He was saddened. Right. He went he away sad. The ESV, which is a horrible translation, but... He was shocked, appalled, and had a gloomy, downcast look. He was sorrowful. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was told he was told to give his treasures away. Which that would be scary. Like give away give away what gave you security. And especially in the time of day, like you people lived hand to mouth. Yeah. Well, but he also had arrogance too. Why is that? I've kept well, all I the mean, law. Yeah, I mean, no think mistakes. about that. Could you imagine? Like, you get a list of the ten big ones. You go, "Oh Jesus, I've kept those since I was a kid. I haven't kept anything since I was a kid. Right. <laughs> I, can't, oh. I can't say anything like that." <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus is like, other people are poor because of you. Right, exactly. You've you've basically pillaged people to become rich. If this story is more the metaphor, right? Of the Mm -hmm. exodus? No, not right now. (laughs) Well, it could be, but who is Jesus? Uh, Who is Mark trying? What's the issue that Mark is trying to address? Jubilee. Well, not just a jubilee, but I mean, this this is probably more about about wealth and acquisition in the early church. Mm-hmm. Could be about wealth and acquisition in the in the Pharisees, or especially the Sadducees. When you look at those groups of people, they keep all the laws, and they right. are gaining massive wealth. In order to gain wealth, you had to you had to be in bed with the empire. You had right. to take away people. So participating in the system that produces uh, poverty. Think about that in the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. The last handful of years. I mean, think about how rich people have gotten and how poor people have gotten just since COVID. I mean, it's unbelievable the economic split that that we have seen, and 
you know, people that disagree with the redistribution of wealth, um, you know, we have, there's been, there's been glimpses of this over time and we've built a system over a long period of time. I don't know the stats. I would have to look it up, but it just seems in my lifetime, in the last 50 years, it is definitely, it seems like the last five years, it has gone, it's an uptick of that, where it's like, okay, yes. I, yeah, I mean, it's massive. just, say again? It's massive. Well, we were supposed to, you know, the boomers were supposed to die, and then there was supposed to be this redistribution of, like, inheritance. So the boomers die, and then, you know, like my generation then inherits all this cash and property and stuff. And it was supposed to be the greatest redistribution of wealth of all time. And now I'm sitting there going, well, yeah, but their wealth is like, a, you know, 75% of what it used to be. So now right. it, it's like, wow, that, that didn't play out. I mean, we, we basically spent $6,000, $7,000 a month in their long-term care plans and probably a million in right. their last two hours of life. So, so then we like have, you know, all the cash burned up, right? And then you have those, those smokers that get on the, you know, the, the telly and say, Hey, you want a good deal? And they scam everybody. So they've taken half of, you know, those scammers that, you know, call you saying they're from, you know, literally I'm getting border patrol. Like who, who's calling me from border patrol It's crazy. Like, are you kidding me? This is not even real. Um, trying to get me to sign up for, you know, some twenty nine ninety five vacuum with a five thousand dollar tax. So, so I look at you know, like these scammers out there literally have taken a lot of wealth from, you know, this older generation, these these vulnerable people. Um, also with inflation, you know, now it costs you you know, $6 for an avocado or whatever. So, so now we have like, now it's just costing us more, you know, like we make this joke, whole foods is whole paycheck. So yeah, I mean, now we have like literally tw twice the, the, uh, the amount of money that we spent on, you know, the same amount of groceries. Thanks, Jeff. So we have like right. this. Despite record profits and. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, once you take a couple of your, you know, hundred billions and try to like get the price of avocados down or something, I don't know. Like, it's just, it just <laughs> seems, seems crazy to me in just the last five years. In the last 10, in the last 10, Jake was offered a house in Sherwood for $89,000. I did not have to loan him the $8,000, right, for the house. And so he said no to the deal. Couldn't figure out how to make the $450 a month payment or whatever it was going to be. Couldn't figure it out. That was only I 10 figure years that ago. out. It was the getting into it. But I was only, I was... In college, I was yeah. I was 22 years old. So it's a little different story than just. Think about that for a second. Oh, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. It's like get wait tables for one night a week or something. You know, we couldn't just figure it out. 
So now you have like $450 a month payment. They couldn't make $8,000 down payment. And now that same house is 350 grand. So yeah, I understand recession and, and house market and all that kind of stuff, but wow, that is a big 10 year spike. And that happened really in the last five, to be honest. So man, where did we go off to? Well, we went off to, it's easier to go for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And I think that that balloon is really tight, right? And mm -hmm. something's going to bust. And I don't know what's going to break, but it's either people's pocketbooks or, or the economy is going to go wonky. I mean, eventually something's going to have to to level out. I mean, yeah. I mean, how are you Some supposed to afford break. a $2,400? How are you supposed to afford a $2,400 a month apartment? One bedroom, mind you. Yeah. And you get, you know, you get a, a home gym that's cheap in, you know, the downstairs lobby. Great. Okay. So now you got your cheap home gym for 2,400 bucks a month and you make $15 an hour. I mean, that just seems the the percentage of your income, there just seems to be something, something okay. happening that has to do with a camel and has to do with a sewing needle. And I can't get the two through. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yep. So then in chat in verse 26, it says, <laughs> and they were exceedingly astonished. I'm astonished. I'm astonished why we have lived in the evangelical world for so long and like we've missed this scripture. I mean, it's like holy in, in the evangelical world. It's holy if the stock market is riding high. That's the God Protestant is blessing us. That's the Protestant experiment. Yeah, but that's the evangelical bill of goods. Yeah. So, well, go ahead, Shreya. Something I've noticed is that, um, you know how in the evangelical world, there's a very individualistic view of sin, and we have a hard time conceptualizing anything systemic. Right. Um, it goes the same way with generosity. You might be a really philanthropic person. You might give to all the nonprofits, um, but it's not addressing systemic issues. We don't address systemic issues with our generosity either. So fundamentally, nothing changes. We just get to be seen as generous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Astonished. Astounded. I'm astonished. I am astonished at the church that we've just missed that scripture. It's like we've missed that. So we have these cathedrals of buildings, millions and millions and millions of dollars, cathedrals of buildings built for a couple of days a week. And, and I understand, I understand the philosophy. I mean, I bought into the philosophy for years, but now I'm just going, wow. I just couldn't imagine 
I just couldn't imagine. Like, who's the guy that has his own plane? I couldn't imagine the guy who owns his own plane. Can you imagine Kevin Bates owning his own plane? Because he needs to fly <laughs> around and get to places. And you expect me, he was interviewed, you expect me to, to fly commercial? Do you know how long that would take me to fly commercial? And the amount of ministry opportunities I would miss because I have oh to fly gosh. commercial? No, seriously. Famous pastor said that. So, I don't have a plane. <laughs> I have one car. I have one car. <laughs> my mode of transportation, my main mode of transportation is to hop rides with Jake or ride my scooter. And on a sunny day, I have a motorcycle. And I feel pretty privileged. And I love riding the bus. I love the bus. You can like read and get to where you're going at the same time. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Buses are pretty cool. <clears throat> yes. And I mean, if I would lose some weight, I'd make it through that needle, hopefully. But <laughs> anyway, well, I think that's enough. Don't you? I think let's pick it up next week. Or you want to read this last part? Let's get through 10. Let's just okay. cruise through really quick. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, let's see. Uh, next slide. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy, uh, that whole needle thing. They were shocked even more and said to each other, astonished, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, it's impossible with human beings, but not with God. All things are possible for God. Peter said to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, I assure you that anyone who has left house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, or farms because of me and because of the good news will receive 100 times as much now in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms with harassment and in the coming age, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Man, I love that. So in the Mosaic system, he was on a mountain and he had a staff. He had the Ten Commandments and the glory of God moved through Moses into the mountain. And the mountain was like this system, marriages and, oh, wait a minute. We're back at the Exodus again. Marriages. <laughs> we had leadership structures. We had... Uh, familial systems, houses, brothers, mothers, farms. We had those that structure, an economic structure. And through Moses, through the glory of Moses, came the glory of God that filtered out through the mountain, the structure of the people, Israel, and the Hebrew people. Uh, the problem is, is that the leaders wanted to get really close to Moses and the rich wanted to get really close to Moses so that they received the glory of God. And the poor got pushed down to the bottom of the mountain. And so they sat at the bottom of the mountain, the leper, the person who couldn't walk, the blind, the woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman were all at the bottom and they couldn't receive the glory of God. 
because basically, you know, it was like wearing a hat when you pray, you know, your prayer doesn't get through the hat bill. So they couldn't get the glory of God couldn't get down to, I was joking, to the poor. And Jesus says, those that will be last will be first and those that will be first will be last. And he takes that mountain and turns it upside down. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Great. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Sherea. With that, we'll mm -hmm. sign off. Thanks, everybody. Make sure you support us by going to resonatelife.org. Good night, everybody. Good night.